Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today, as every week, I have a very interesting guest. Today with me is uh, Benjamin Strick. Ben is the Director of Investigations for the Center for Information Resilience, leading teams in the use of open source intelligence, also in short, to support civil society, media, government, and accountability mechanisms. He was previously an open source investigator with BBC Africa High and Bellingcat contributor and has a background in law and military. In 2021, he was awarded Open Source Intelligence Champion of the Year for investment, commitment and contribution to the field and was voted in the top 100 influencers on open technology in the UK in 2023. He shares his passion for open source investigations to free YouTube tutorials to democratize these skills. And today, uh, I'm honored to have him on. Thank you for being here, Ben. Thanks so much for having me, Ahmed. Really, uh, really honored to be on the podcast, man. Yes, I uh, I mentioned to you earlier how I found your work before before we go into a bit of your background. I read once an article that you did on the Sadaka coin, if you remember. I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> like a crowdfunded crypto currency project of jihadists, I believe which was so interesting and so different and so new to what I've seen before. And I was like, hey, this is super interesting. And I think from then on out, I started a bit fanboying uh, <laughs> of your work. And uh, yeah, again, thank you so much for being here. And to go into the first question, or unless you wanted to say something about the Sadaka coin. I mean, uh... <laughs> <laughs> not except for that it was a long time ago and a very, a very different type of open source, but Thanks for yeah. thanks for reminding me. <laughs> do, do you have the feeling when you read things or, or you're reminded of things that you've done so long time ago that you get like, oh, I don't know, like I could have done it better, or like I, I have that, so I don't know if you have the same feelings. Always, honestly, I'm 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 my own biggest critic. Yeah, and you know, I, I see how how I investigated things, and I'm like, oh, you noob, you know, you could have done it better like this, <laughs> or you know, you rookie. You know, I, I do that even, even things I published two weeks ago, you know, you shouldn't have done that or you could have done better or, you know, oh, why on earth didn't you do that? But, uh, you know, I think those and, and then implementing those critiques for the next one um, is, is, is uh, you know, really a good way to, to improve your investigations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what I would love to know is like, how did you get into this and, and what did you do before the whole geospatial intelligence stuff? <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I, I think to put it in a snippet, I've always been a bit of a, a curious cat, so to say. So really a bit of an explorer, uh, obviously digitally. Um, you know, most of the time I don't leave my living room to, to see the far ends of the world. I started this at sort of quite a young age. So back in sort of very, very, uh, you know, I, I'd say at, at, the, at a time when newspapers were, were not digital whatsoever, but at a time when newspapers are on the brink of, you know, people getting concerned about losing their jobs to citizen journalists and uh, yeah, yeah, things yeah. like that, I was working at a community newspaper. And I think that's where I started to explore the depths of how nice it was to really dig amongst the troves of information to, to dig out a story. And back then it was phone calls or publicly available resources like going down to the library and checking out a book on on local crime, local autobiographies to, to build up a kind of knowledge. 
and, and, and an expertise on, on a subject before you, you write about it. And then I, 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 you know, sort of excelled quite well at journalism and, and, and went into law. So, uh, you know, got the kind of taste for how nice it is to dig deep into subjects at law school and, and vice versa in criminal law where you can really, you know, I, I think law harbors obsessive mindsets and that's how you get, you know, 200 page judgments on something yeah. as, as simple as a, as a murder case. And, you know, and, and, and I guess applying that, I've always wanted to kind of do good in the world and do a little bit more than just my own backyard. And out of that, I joined the military wanting to do good. And the way I saw that was being a basic soldier to learn you know, the basics of warfare, but also how to, how to bring peace about the world and, and, and how, to, how to have an impact in, in much larger theatres. And obviously started to get into uh, human intelligence on the ground, mapping. So, you know, when, when you're stuck out in the field uh, and you have a, a section or a platoon of troops relying upon you to read a map, uh, you better know how to do it well and you better get your coordinates right. And, and I think fusing those things together really drew me back into investigative journalism, digital investigations, and just exploring what the internet had, but in a, in a certain way. And that's how I've been able to really canvas a whole, a whole range of topics from, from terrorism, jihadism, as you mentioned, right up to, you know, what, what we're looking at at the moment. So the, the war in Ukraine and justice and accountability mechanisms. So for me, it's really a personality rather than just hopping into a job and wanting to do OSINT. And, and, you know, if I was employed or not employed, I'd still be doing it. And, and I think that's, that's, that's a core part of, of this kind of industry and, and, you know, the kind of people in it. Absolutely. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And what do you focus on today? What do I focus on today? I think being a more diligent investigator. I'm, I'm in a, a quite sort of, I mean, I've been doing this for a while and, and sadly the graduation goes that when you do this for a while, you end up getting higher and higher in your job role. So uh, more so working with quite large teams <laughs> on this stuff. So I, I think providing advice to and, and, and ass- assisting and supporting teams as a manager is, is, you know, something I do quite a lot at the moment, but leading much bigger projects. Once upon a time, I was an independent investigator working on my own, banging out cool tweets and doing siloed investigations. And, and a critique that I often gave to myself was you failed to work with other people. And, and that, was, that was something that I, I tried to steer myself away from eventually, because I think there's there's so much more power in collaboration than, than anyone can imagine. It's nice to get your name in headlights. It's nice to get your name in the news and the media. But for real power through open source, there's collaboration. And, and it's bigger than just one of us. And, and that's what I've been working on over the past sort of few years is working on group work with larger teams as a roundtable to tackle big situations and really take those big situations such as what, what's escalated into almost a war in Myanmar, dealing with that situation or, 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 or large events like the war in Ukraine and breaking them down into small manageable chunks so that we can give them the treatment that we do best, which is that added value of open source intelligence. Well, fascinating. I wanted to go into something you, I think, 
people may even know you for might now be a little bit different now you're managing teams but geospatial intelligence and an open source geospatial intelligence what what made you go that direction which was not really that explored in the open source domain as far as i know by many people yeah that's a really good question i think the reason that drew me to the geospatial work or or, or the mapping work was a visual aspect to make something so complex, but to understand it with a map. And I mean, the saying goes, everyone loves a good map, right? Whether you map data, whether you map locations, indicators, fires, or, or, or whatever you map, it creates a single picture of a much harder to understand situation. And, and if I was to sit here and talk about the protests in Sudan, a lot of people would be like, oh, what are you talking about? That's a massive history. But if I was to provide a single map showing the increase of violence in Sudan against protesters and the use of that violence to squash democratic protesters in a single image, that's just so powerful. And, and you know, almost the saying goes, a single map is worth a thousand data points, much like a single image is worth a thousand words, right? We, we, we run a free map called Eyes on Russia, which is the map of Ukraine, with more than 20,000 geolocated images and videos uh, on that map. And, and we make that publicly available. And that's, that's a good kind of indicator for how powerful something such as an easy visualized representation of what's happening in a place. You know, to, to explain the atrocities happening in Myanmar, we create a, a map on the fires and the, and the villages that are being currently burnt uh, and, and the trend and escalation of that through, through colours and, 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 you know, strategic, uh, you know, date representations as well. And just in that kind of single image on someone's phone, on someone's laptop or computer screen, it shows what's happening in a country. And that's kind of why I chose it because I could do a Twitter thread of, of you know, 500 tweets <laughs> based on, you know, what's happening in a country or I could write a 120-page article report on, on the complexities of a conflict, but it's still not as valuable as a single map of what happens. And, and I think that's why I chose the geospatial aspect right down to clean satellite imagery to show Russian military movements right up to visual scales of, you know, 20,000 or more data pins. And it's that kind of condensation of open source intelligence that, that there's a lot of strength in really because it's about conveying as well as uh, doing the investigations right and if, if you can't show your work properly in a simple to understand manner then you kind of fail the, the the reach of the audience from open source intelligence right and you can't demystify the magic that that some people believe OSINT is <laughs> absolutely I mean you you went through a couple of interesting projects that that you've been involved in, for me, I think probably the most impactful one. I mean, there's two that come to mind because one I think was very. I think all of them are important, but there was something going on in my own work that 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 that, that was really helpful to me was the war crimes in Cameroon or Cameroonian soldiers. Right, I think that was like to me. Because there was something going on in my work that, 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 you know, brought it really home and Myanmar, because I've done a lot of work around Myanmar and it's close to my heart. So 
I've been following a lot of the work that you've been doing on that. And I know sometimes it's a thankless job because, you know, with all due respect, it's not as a sexy topic, right, as Ukraine and Russia is or, you know, any of the other, like Taiwan, China, any of the other geopolitical issues. But in a roundabout way where I want to go, it's like what was for you the most impactful, the most, that hit you the most uh, or, or that you think, you know, we did really great work there? I mean, I'd never put one project over another especially where I've worked. I think any project where I've worked with people from the country has been the most important thing, you know, and, and that goes to the sense of collaboration. I think there's a lot of OSINTers on, on, on Twitter or online that, that, you know, overnight they become specialists on a certain country and they just start banging out tweets about it without ever actually meeting someone from that country or, or visiting the country or working with people from there. I think two two of the projects that have stood at the top for me, one of them is obviously Myanmar. So we run a small NGO called Myanmar Witness where we employ, we, we have a number of, of investigators that don't live in Myanmar anymore, but they are Burmese. And they started with us thinking I, they, they, they wanted to start with open source. They wanted to get into open source. They didn't know how to do it. And two years on, in, in what has been, what is actually now pretty much a, a war, but two years on from the country essentially trying to squash any form of dissent, these, these investigators are now trainers teaching Burmese journalists in Burmese how to do open source investigations. And for me, man, that's so rich. My God, that's so fulfilling. Like I, I, I can retire as, as a really proud open source person because... These people are now ongoing teaching people and, and you know, they're, they're not picking up guns, they're picking up keyboards and that, that is wicked. And I, and I noticed the same thing back in 2019 uh, when I was working for the BBC around Sudan. It was in the headlines for a little bit, just a tiny little bit around these pro-democratic protests. There was, you know, the world was standing with Sudan at a time, but over the space of about a year, I just got to know the people so well on the ground to the point where we were running little sessions online, you know, doing geolocations together, showing them how to do mobile phone OSINT, or I call it MOSINT, and, and, and those sort of aspects. And, and for me, that's, that's far more rewarding than a tweet that might hit 10,000 retweets or, or, you know, getting onto the BBC or anything like that is instilling power into people that would never have access to these resources unless you provided it. And that's, that's rich. So I think that emotional value and that emotional connection is really uh, something that, that will always sit for me. And, and, and watching those people now go on to be, you know, professional investigative journalists or to be trainers in OSINT from Sudan, from Myanmar, that's awesome, man. And that, that really resonates with me a lot. You talked about Sudan and the impact that the people had on you. And I said that I felt that when people were no longer um, looking at Sudan, uh, in particular journalists, um, you were still reporting on it. And even though it was not as popular on the headlines anymore. And that shows, I think, you know, um, how you engage with your work and you don't just walk away because there's a cooler, uh, fancier topic on the horizon. 
Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks, uh, thanks for that. Yeah, you know, I think it, it, it says something about open source as well. So, something I've always believed is that open source intelligence isn't meant for scatter approach people. It, it's not meant to be something that you can just quickly scrape the surface, right? Because otherwise, you're not you're not doing any value add. I mean, sure, you can do a little bit of geolocation work on whatever's hot in the media, but there's no value add. But I think when it comes to working with people, and, and maybe that, that takes it out of the realm of open source intelligence because it's kind of closed source, but with this kind of work, when when you work with people on the ground, when you develop a true deep understanding of the the politics, the attitude of people, the the wording that they use when they upload footage, the mentality that they have, the social media platforms they use, the the type of actors acting in the space, such as the threat actors. When you build up that much information, it, it's it's always a question of do you put it to waste by moving to uh, another another war, another flashy object that that might be ticking off in some part of the world, or do you keep pushing the pin with those people and you keep that kind of level of representation up and you know, that, that's kind of an important thing, right? And, you know, the, the jihadist stuff that we talked about at the start around Sadaka coin, that took me a long, long time to dig out. And this was quite sort of early on when there were not many Bitcoin investigation walkthroughs or, or guides, when I was trying to really look on Reddit forums where people had been scammed and they were looking for tools around, you know, finding out who scammed them. Here I was trying to piece together those those tools to follow the money essentially and follow those accounts. And I did that for several months. But I think the value add of diving into that information and getting to know every single thing about a topic is where you emerge on the other side with with something that, that's truly new, uh, that's truly value add. And and that sort of I think there's a strength. In, in open source in that. And it, it's probably something I'd say to so many other investigators. If you if you find a topic, don't be a subject matter expert on OSINT. Be a subject matter expert on an event or a group, a terrorist designated group. You know, be the OSINTer of Iranian Guard Corps or be the OSINTer of North Korean hackers rather than just bouncing around from subject to subject. I, I think there's there's true value in, in being the master of one specific field and really going deep in that field because there's, uh, you know, the, 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 the space for OSIN is becoming more competitive as well. It's, uh, it's being flooded with new entrants um, and each one of those have the energy and, and the age <laughs> to, to grind every single day on those fields. And, you know, the, the, the best thing that professionals can do in this field is to really carve out their niche on, on, on a certain subject matter. Thank you so much for that. I find it interesting, and I think I have a follow-up question on what you just said there. Somebody uh, I spoke with who runs an intelligence team in, in, a, in a big global company, I think as passionate about OSINT as you are, and he feels that we should be generalist, right? But I think it, ha- and that's my question, do you think that from an investigative perspective, it is more important to be a subject matter expert than from, let's say, 
an analysis or predictive forecasting uh, expert to be more of a generalist. Yeah, I mean, it's always the the generalist for deep dive debate, yeah. right? Um, and and there's reason for both, you know. I think mm-hmm. when you get to the point of of you know being a bit more senior in open source and 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 in in management, as as you explained, that person was from, they probably have to be generalist because they're probably dealing with with threat actors all over the world: Iran, China, Russia, North Korean hacker groups, you know, and and everything to do with due diligence and, and threat intelligence. But I, I, I think from specifically the kind of fields that I've been working in, there's, there's a choice of subject and, and a prioritization to get to the level of depth. And, you know, it, it goes to, so it goes to show for, for example, what, what happened with, with, uh, the, the Cameroon story that we worked on prior to that, I was, I was deep into, into Libyan territory tracking an Islamic state group. And, and I couldn't touch Cameroon until, you know, I really wanted to because there were some horrendous human rights abuses happening there. But I couldn't touch it until I knew that I had, I had identified the current location or, or, or the location of within a week of where this Islamic State actor was in, in Libya. And, and, it, and it took me quite some time to really track down every single movement, every single person they met, the training camp that they were at, and those sorts of aspects to to follow that person. And I was able to do that because I obsessed about their life. I obsessed about their movement and their digital footprint. And then moving on to the Cameroon aspect where where there were about seven, six to seven of us really focusing on this on this aspect for, you know, a good four months, we're able to dig out from a simple video that was uploaded online exactly where, when it happened, and also who was responsible to the point where the individuals responsible for killing those women and children in that footage were jailed for 10 years, which you know, is obviously not enough, but that's besides the point. But I, I think, yeah, it, it depends on the kind of field you're going for, right? So for my type of, for myself, the definition of OSINT is really about that investigative value add, you know, for, for accountability or for, for that sort of level of work. But Others might do OSINT in corporate OSINT, where they might be doing sort of more work on threat intelligence or due diligence, right? So I think, you know, when I say about the, the, the value add of long-term investigative work, I think that's more so for the folks that fall into the category of deep investigations, holding those responsible to account, the type of investigative journalism or OSINT for public good. But obviously, I mean, you, you would have a lot of professionals listening to this being like, yeah, well, I don't have the time to do that because I have about 10 countries in one day to look at. So, you know, very, I, I think I, I probably resonate with a very niche audience. And that's the joy of OSINT is that it's becoming a bigger field. And it's so beautiful for that aspect that now we have subcultures within the OSINT community of people working on different aspects. So it's a good point you raise that one because it's not, it's not the only way to do OSINT. Thank you for that extensive answer and also it, it it i think you echo what i said what my response was because i think from a from a person running teams it's good to know what's going on generally in the world but i think from a person i mean it's just like how you know our teams great dynamics are set up are all focused on a region or a theme or a thematic focus 
because I, I agree with you. Even from a non-investigative perspective, if you're, if you're doing forecasting or threat intelligence, I think it's important if you're the one doing the actual research to, to become an expert, to become a subject matter expert on, on what you're talking about. I, I, I do see the, the role in that. And I think traditional governmental intelligence teams are, they, they exist out of different types of subject matter experts. So for, for, for people listening, I think it, it definitely resonates what you said about doing these long hauls. So somebody watching Yemen, right, is, is probably going to be, become, if, if they're not already a Yemen expert, maybe learn Arabic and, you know, we'll, we'll know all the groups active in, in the Yemen conflict. You know, probably if you wake them at 3 a.m. and at night, they would, they can drone them off one by one, right? So there is, in my opinion, definitely a, a place for, for expertise and, and, and focus. So I just, you know, wanted to say you're right in a long winded <laughs> manner. One thing that, that, that uh, popped up into my mind, you know, about the Cameroon horrific footage. If you've never watched it, please don't. Uh, spare yourself. How do you deal with with vicarious trauma and and the things you you see in your line of work? Oh, can you yeah. deal with it? Getting into the hard stuff here. Um, yeah, yeah, we try. You know, it it's funny. Yesterday, I had a conversation with a journalist called me up saying, you know, and and they really only got into open source since February twenty four. So since the the most recent invasion of Ukraine. And they were just struggling, honestly. And, and they were struggling with the footage, with, with everything that was going on and, and, and being bombarded with it all the time. And honestly, there's such a lack of awareness around just dealing with, with this. You know, this, this person was saying that they, they go to bed with these, with these images, with these videos that they've been trying to analyze, to geolocate and to, to map out and, and these investigations that they're doing. And, um, and they don't feel like they can communicate about it because no one else at this news agency understands because they don't know what open source intelligence is or digital investigations. And it, it's such an important razor. And, and, you know, I remind my teams all the time, as soon as you feel a bit of sweaty palms or a knot in your stomach, you shut that com computer screen down, man. Like you go for a walk, you get outside, you talk to your friends, you play with your dog or swing a yo-yo or whatever you have to. Because, you know, it, it's about having, it's about being a long-term investigator, not just a quick, you know, get in there, get damaged and get out kind of person. So I think f first and foremost, that's the immediate response I give to people is as soon as you feel like you have those signs of fright, uh, the hair stands up on the back of your neck, you, you get sweaty palms. I mean, I, I, I get sweaty palms. You get a bit jittery, a bit shaky, a bit agitated, like you're, like you're, you're nervous or something. Just by looking at your screen, get off, you know, tell your boss, tell your workmates, you know, go and have a chat with someone, go for a walk, you know, see the trees, listen to the birds. You know, that's, that's the first and foremost thing to address that. I think that there is some advice I give to, to other investigators of, of all levels around, you know, simple tricks such as not viewing the video footage or, or the photo in full. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're 
staring at your screen like I do every day in a very big screen. If it's if it's traumatic footage, you know, watch it in a minimized window so that you're not fully immersing yourself into it. Don't watch it with the audio because oftentimes the the audio of someone, you know, someone being decapitated or or things like that is is far more worse than the actual footage itself. It's it's easy in video editors to to turn it into black and white so that you're at least when you go and dream about that footage, you're not dreaming in, a, in, in an immersive, colourful environment. But there is some some difference to what real life looks like. And, and taking those breaks, I think, is important. Uh, and just reminding yourself of why, why you're looking at that and is it relevant to look at it for a long time. So for the Cameroon footage, for me, and I'd, I'd watch that video hundreds of times, um, even the point where, where the women and children are being shot to identify exactly where they were shot. And in, in looking at that, I, I remind myself, this is important to look at because I hope that one day this goes towards some level of accountability for those people. And, and that's why I'm absorbing this radiation. But I need to treat it like radiation. So I limit my exposure by going for walks, by being healthy, by you know, talking to my partner and cooking and, and, and things like that. And there, there's a lot of mental health guides out there, a lot of a lot of vicarious trauma guides because this is being spoken about, especially since that, that February, that February invasion where, where so much footage has been coming out of Ukraine and high definition footage. This has been a much more spoken about issue, which is really good. But yeah, those are just some points for me, but I think there's there's definitely a developing space and there's some really good content that's coming out there from the Dart Center. Bellingcat has been putting out content around vicarious trauma and how to deal with that. And I, I think this is, is if your workplace is not speaking about it, then then raise it because it's not just you or, or, or your, your listeners right now, or, or if you're listening to this, it's not just you, but it's the people that might be interns at your organization or might be juniors at your organization that are a bit afraid to, to speak up and you really need to to be bold and, and set that path to destigmatize um, that content absolutely yeah thank you so much I think that's I think a part of of, of of research that really is not talked about enough and uh, I know it's raised and uh, it's getting more and more attention but what you said there at the end is so important because a lot of junior analyst interns feel Sometimes that they are wasting your time for asking questions or, or if they don't hear about it, if it's not spoken about, they think it's, they're the ones that are abnormal and not, you know, this work, which it is abnormal to work. It's not normal to, to watch this type of footage, you know, on a daily basis. And I, and I, and I will raise this. I think people should understand that this, vicarious trauma that you can pick up from watching videos is often worse than seeing it live. And, and, and I can say that as a subject matter expert, and maybe that's anecdotal, but at least in real life, you can give it a place. You know, this finding out like, um, what's the way to say this? I had a, I had a, I have a mentor who once said to me that it's like, if you watch somebody on be killed on, 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 on TV, it's a bit of a spiritual conversation that it's like, if you choose to watch it, right, for whatever reason, 
Um, but I think for the reasons that you raised, it's a, it's a good reason. But if you're watching this stuff, you're young and you're reaching, you're seeking this out, and people are getting younger doing this, particularly people outside of like journalism or, or, or corporate or government, it's like your soul dies a little bit every time you see somebody get killed or, and there's, you need to like recharge that. And, and it's so important to, yeah, to, to give like real tips. And I think you did that right there. So, so sorry, I, I went a little bit off there, but I think that's very important. And I think a lot of people don't realize it until it's too late. Absolutely, man. Until they have, you know, they have the dreams and they don't know who they can talk to. So yeah, some, some really good tips there. And I'm definitely going to put that in the show notes that people can, uh, can have that. Something a little bit different on a different tack. I know you, you do a lot of training and do like YouTube uh, videos. Why did you start doing that? And why are you so passionate about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it really goes back to what I was, <clears throat> what I was mentioning about Sudan and, and Myanmar. I noticed at first when I was at, at Africa Eye, so with, with the BBC, we used to run training sessions in sub-Saharan African countries. And I'd also get people that just didn't meet the benchmark or weren't journalists or weren't, um, weren't privileged to be in, in newsrooms that, uh, you know, might've been activists or might've just been people growing up a pretty crappy environment where there's a war going on, where there's, uh, you know, an ethnic rival conflict and they just wanted to be able to give some level of representation to the footage that they were being sent privately by WhatsApp or Signal, things like that. And it was actually a, a group operating out of Borno State in Nigeria that was just consistently contacting me, asking me for training sessions. And, you know, I, I, I gave it to them. I, I, I didn't charge in any money, even though they, they offered it, because I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to have a good job, a good income. I live in London. And I've got these skills that, my gosh, these people could use so much more importantly than than how I use them. And it just got me thinking that I can't, I can't do that for every organisation in the world, and that these skills need to be condensed, easy to understand, and, and in a way that can be um, that can be seen by people easily whenever, not just on my terms when I'm free to run a a free Zoom session. So I started to record these YouTube videos just on, on basic things like, or what we would consider basic, um, like image reverse search, which, uh, you know, still to this day seems to fascinate Western journalists who ask, how on earth do you do an image reverse search? And it's like, well, you right click on Google, how to geolocate a photo, you know, and, and, and things like that. And it's like the value that that sort of stuff can add to people, uh, operating in difficult environments where, you know, where training sessions aren't generally held, where open source intelligence and digital literacy is just at a very low threshold and to contribute to their fight so that, you know, they, they, they're armed with a bit more of a sharper keyboard than having to turn towards using a rifle as an activist, you know, and, and, and that's, that's why I do these videos and that's why I put such passion into into making new uh engaging content and, and and really getting that content shareable so that they have access to that content yeah that's fantastic i didn't even know that and i researched i didn't know that that was your motivation so that's really interesting i think 
you hit the nail on the head when you talked about digital literacy. And yeah. and the and the uh, a side anecdote again, uh, I get the, I get sent screenshots, videos, pictures from people from around the world, but mainly from Africa. Mm. You know, sharing something with me. Have you seen this? Pro- you get them probably too. <laughs> um, you know, uh, have you seen this? Or hey, this is going on. What do you think? Um, people from there, right? And what shocks me sometimes, sometimes it's like security service people, sometimes it's journalists, sometimes activists, that you and I would take a look at a picture. I think most people that are a, a bit literally literate would look at the picture and say, this is Photoshop, right? Mm-hmm. This cannot, this, this does look so off, right? But for them, the concept of it being Photoshop doesn't exist for a lot of people in the world, right? And they will look at a picture and for them, it seems real. And the, the, the danger, obviously we're going into like misinformation, disinformation there, but I think in that role, digital literacy and training is so important because to show people, hey, this is an example of a picture. This is an example of an altered one. And I'm talking about really shoddy altered ones that, that are that are really getting people right and, and and it's getting people riled up and you know it's not even sophisticated stuff. Like for example, this weekend I was looking at you know one of the most controversial topics online, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw that there was a download of the Hunter Biden laptop that was being shared around and it had altered images and videos in it. But most people sharing that wouldn't know that, wouldn't know how to recognize that somebody injected it with, which is a trick that is done regularly in, 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 you know, leaked databases and when somebody can get to it early, they can do whatever they want with it. So, I think, you know, there, there is, you know, an, an incredibly important role for, for education. So, yeah. That's, that's something I wanted mm-hmm. to um, say. I, I don't know, like, how, how often you've encountered that. No, oh, so many times. And, and I think it's, you're right. Like, that there is a space in emerging markets where that is just so crucial, you know, and, and, and stopping that. Right. And, and it just creates danger. It creates a, it creates a threat tangent that is so powerful to play on the lack of digital literacy in, in building communities. And, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it in, in places, for example, Ethiopia, where, where it's a tinderbox between, between certain groups of people and one image that might have clearly something photoshopped in it because everyone has been force fed that narrative or or believes so strongly in such a community based narrative about another group of people that they they look past the clear obvious photoshopping that you or I or anyone else with a keen eye would see and they're like oh yep human rights abuse committed or or look at those terrorists at it again without even stopping to think about that and i think that's that's almost that step one right stop analyze and just have a second thought about what you see online. And, and you know, it, it kind of reverts me back to, I think there was an article in 2018 that said the golden age of OSINT is over. And, and I always look back on that and I have a little chuckle to myself because I just think 
man, that person mustn't, mustn't know about emerging markets because, you know, investigators say to me all the time, oh, I wish I was an O-Center back then because it's just not fun anymore. I'm like, man, wait till you see how, how strong groups like Sub-Saharan Africa will be. I mean, the mobile phone penetration is, is about to go through the roof one day. Incredible. It's not even there yet. Incredible. And still you're getting so much content out. Yeah. I mean, what a privilege to be on a potential wave at the moment, but what a dangerous potential disaster. And, and I think that's where we start to get in the idea of treating it as a medical problem, not as an internet problem. The danger mm. of disinformation is so real that it almost needs to be a vaccination, which mm. is digital literacy, rather than just a, a skill that you might pick up if you have a mobile phone, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, that's a really... A great way of of saying it. I think one of the one of the biggest questions I get, for example, from like corporate clients, that they're afraid right now of like supply chain risk or supply chain compliance. We, we see that in Cobalt and in DRC, for example, um, mm. where they say, you know, how to, like we know what's going on in the capitals, but how do we know what's going on in the rural areas in smaller towns? And I'm like. Some of these countries have leapfrogged certain countries in, in, in Europe when it comes to like mobile phone adoption simply because they didn't have hard lines and so that they didn't stand in the way. So they went from nothing to smartphones, right? Mm. And, and, and you're seeing really interesting things coming out right now. I think if you remember the whole Joseph Coney hunt, that you know was really like big and not mm. anymore. I think if that was done today, it probably would have been found, knowing like the amount of sensors, mobile phones that exist, even though DRC is probably one of the most you know, impenetrable countries on earth just by by you know how, how large it is and how much craziness is going on in that country. So mm. I think the segues us really nicely into probably for a lot of listeners, what's the most valuable part? But I would love to hear any, first of all, I would love to hear any tools that you're looking at and that you're using that, that you can't believe are, that are real. Sometimes I have that. And also, what advice would you give young OSINTERS, young researchers, young analysts? <laughs> I'll start with the tools. I think yeah. I've been getting more into you know i'll steer away from complex tools and 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 corporate tools because i think there is such power in getting back in the basics you know that there's there's really cool tools out there like uh you know and and ones that might be phased out one day i remember the great facebook collapse where we had group uh, tools like stalk scan or or things like that where you could see basically through library searches every photo that someone was indexed in Sadly, that got kicked out the window in 2019. We have Who Posted What, which is a great one. So Who Posted What is a, is a really good tool for Facebook to search for a specific term on a specific day. There's a lot of creativity around that. But I think just going back to basics and, and the best hacker tool of them all being Google, that Google search bar is, is an incredible beast when you plug certain binary searches in there with certain what they call Google dorks or Google hacks, but the kind of searches that you can do in there can reveal passwords, 
can reveal documents about different governments around the world that shouldn't be public but are, that can find out such information, whether it be Russian leaks, what Wagner is up to, and all that sort of content, right from Google's search bar. The same thing you type in when you're looking for a a 30-day fitness plan or where your nearest cafe is. So I would say that one. And I think the other best hacker tool of them all is the right-click and inspect to see the source code of a page. The amount of information that is on different websites that's not naked to the visible eye unless you right-click and inspect is such a, uh, such a, a cool tool. So that, that right-click on, on any, any browser and view page source and inspect can open up such amazing content to the point where uh, I remember one, one investigator or, or, or titled hacker that did that same tool and was able to enter the flight booking account of the Australian Prime Minister and find out his private details, change the booking if he wanted to, (laughs) all from a right-click and view page source. And it's like getting back into the simple tools, I think, is a strong point. And and I'd probably say that to any junior investigator, right, anyone beginning in the field. Don't try and do the massive, complex, mad things that everyone's doing with huge data visualizations and big team projects that are probably only possible with, with a lot of funding, grant funding or corporate funding. But master the basics because unlike the tools that I've spoken about that, that have been wiped out by, uh, you know, Facebook access restrictions and things like that, those few page source tools or, 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 or Google search bar tools, those tools will be around forever. And, and, and that's the kind of stuff that you can build off of with, uh, with big investigations. But I think on top of that, just what we've kind of spoken about during this whole podcast around picking a topic. So I'm probably going against the advice of, of one of your former guests here, <laughs> but really picking a topic and, and go into being a subject matter expert and really getting into that. So if it's, if it's Sudan or Somalia that tickles your fancy, get in there you know, get amongst it, read the local media, those small groups that only have a viewership of 500 a week, read that stuff, understand what happens in the local villages, have a look at the photos, geolocate them, map them, get a massive database of mapping. And before you know it, massive national democratic governments reach out to you saying, hey, you do OSINC, can we access your database? <laughs> it's, it's that simple, but just pick a topic and just do it longer than the others who give up on it would do it for. Fantastic. And do you think that, what's your opinion on training, education? Do you have any advice on that? Giving training or receiving training? Or receiving training. Oh, tricky one. I mean, I don't want to disrespect all the trainers that are on big incomes these days. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I hope you guys aren't offering training, but my my advice would be, (laughs) I think if you want, if, if you're, if you're in a job already and you want to pick up a familiarization of open source, training is perfect. If you want to, if you're a manager or you're an analyst and, and, uh, and, and you want to become aware of open source or pick up some cool tricks and tips, do training. But if you want to be an OSINT professional or an investigator and you want to do this for a living and, and be a, be a figure, be a, be a standalone investigator. 
pick your niche and work on it and grind on that niche and those tools and learn how to break those tools, use them creatively in ways that others would not have thought of um, and really get in there so that you're, you're kind of self-implementing a train-the-trainers model. We work in capacity development. like That is our bread and butter at, at the work that I do with, with the NGO I'm with. And we have two aspects. We do the kind of three to five day workshops on capacity building and, and awareness raising. And that's so that managers or, or, or professionals existing in, in, in different environments are aware and can maybe do some cool tricks with open source. But with the train the trainers model, we get an investigation and they work on it and they push themselves exploring the depths of creativity. And I think that at the end of the day creates a far better model because those people are now training organizations and training individuals. And it's only because they have the confidence in investigations and they, they know the tools in and out that they're able to do that. So I think with, with training, it depends on who you are and, and what you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. I'm obviously biased uh, in that because I 100% agree with you when you're talking about tools, finding stuff, your know, investigative skill set. Uh, I agree with you. I think where there is a massive gap, what you can get at university, but in life too, first of all, is critical thinking mm-hmm. and how to apply that to your findings and, 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 and how to turn that into, as you said, you know, valuable intelligence or predictions or, or, or evidence. And the other one that I would add, which is, I think, the, the biggest one, which is writing well. That's where, you know, diff- the different audiences you write different things for. But I think a lot of young people come from university and they don't engage well with short to the point writing, which you know, journalists do have. And it's a lot of academic writing. So I think purely from an intelligence perspective, I think writing is is I think that a lonely top there that's something that's not educated enough and it's all about tools and and I as I, as you said I don't wanna deprive anybody of uh of income but I think there is like every intelligence manager, team leader that I speak to on the corporate and government side mainly this is what I hear. Mm. The the writing the writing is is something that can really use which is why we are doing a training on that because we feel that that's kind of like a lacking. And I see that with, with interns. I see that with, with young analysts personally. So but what you said about OSINT, the tools, the reverse engineering, dual use of tools that you never thought about you can use in a certain way, that I, I completely agree with you. Explore and make mistakes and, and go for it. You know, But if you are presenting your findings, there's an important uh, distinction in, in how professionals present their findings and you know, don't, don't show like a hundred pages of findings, but nobody's going to read that. Oh, <laughs> the first three pages and be succinct. You know, I used to have, um, and, and I know he will listen to this. I used to have a professor who always said he had a variation of, of the, of the famous term, kill your darlings. Um, uh, he would say, kill your babies, you know, because people don't want to cut down their work and be to the point. Um, some people might think that's insensitive, but he always got a point across with that sentence. So, yeah, 
sorry, I didn't want to, I just wanted to piggyback off your, your answer there, but that's something that a bit of a value add that I wanted to give there. I, th- I feel like we know the we we we're talking about similar people because honestly it's much <laughs> a good point and and you know it's it's not a week goes by where I don't say you've got to get your story like you've mm-hmm. just got to you you could spend an hour over Zoom with someone and they still can't present the or they can't contain the investigation that they've spent ages on and and it's 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 sad to be honest and it, and it's you 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 know, you, you want to develop those people because they've put such energy mm-hmm. into those investigations and they've got such an important investigation. They just can't explain it in less than an hour and, and they can't explain it in, 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 you know, a, a small capsule. Probably why Twitter's so good with the, the forced word restriction. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, sure. and yeah, that, that executive summary in, in reports is, uh, is very important because it allows people to think, What's the most important information that I have? What is the backbone of the story in one page? Yeah, so very, really good point. Thanks for, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I, I knew you would agree to that because that's pretty much anybody that's in your role says this to me, you know? So uh, <laughs> I've I paid attention, not only in a podcast, but, but outside of that. And my final question, as I always ask every guest, is what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening? It doesn't have to be OSINT. It can be every, anything else. Oh, okay. Um, what, I'm re- what I'm reading at the moment, uh, so it's a book from Myanmar called The Land of the Green Ghosts. It's an absolutely wicked book uh, about a young individual. It goes into the culture of Myanmar, but also goes into that rich context and history of, of battles, dictatorship by the Myanmar government that has expanded decades of years. And, and it just... I mean, it just explains the kind of thing that we were talking about before about how important context is and how important it is to understand aspects of history that are that are affecting today's events. Um, so yeah, that's that's Absolutely. a book. It's actually really well written as well. So I'll, I'll, I can send a link through and the title through if I didn't pronounce mm-hmm. it too well. But a very good book. What I'm watching at the moment, I, I try to not watch too much TV, but yeah, I I um. I would have to say I've I've uh, recently gotten into uh, the recruit, which was on Netflix. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm a sucker. Yeah, I'm I'm a sucker for seeing. I watched how... it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay, I did. Yeah. I think everyone in this field just loves to see how how Hollywood or Netflix or international groups perceive intelligence. Mm. Um, yeah. So I love to see the sex appeal of someone being sent to the Yemen as a junior analyst or things like yeah. that. Whereas my entire yeah. life has just been the most danger I'll have is burning my mouth on a coffee or something sitting on sitting on my couch. So that's the aspect there. And yeah, that's that's what I've been reading and and watching and um, and listening to. Uh, well, I'll be listening to this podcast when it comes out. Yeah. But otherwise, listening to audiobooks on different languages. So at the moment, I'm trying to pick up some Ukrainian. But again, that just goes into my obsessiveness and, and what you mentioned before, learn some of the language, get yeah. to familiarize yourself with it. And yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something I'm, I'm trying to do more of. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I think on the recruit, but I would say it's, it's, it's fun. I, I think, <laughs> I think most, most people, I, I've spoken with, with, with people that worked or work in the CIA and they think it's silly and 
it's hilarious and it's exaggerated. Some some parts, like Marcel, who is one of our team members, and he's a former BIA analyst, he said the most real thing about the show is that you have, that he's living, he's a lawyer for the CIA and he's living with two roommates. Uh, <laughs> in, in DC. So that, that's one thing that, uh, but it's a fun show. I don't know if people know this, but it's based, loosely based on a movie, a similar movie, uh, with Colin Farrell and Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. I think it came out like 20 years ago. The movie is really good. And, and this is much more comedy. You know, there's a lot of slapstick moments in there. But yeah, good show. Fun. I watched it over Christmas. And I'm definitely going to check out The Green Ghost. Very interesting. Benjamin, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. I know you just came back from over Kiev and yeah, looking for some rest. So thank you for, for taking the time and, and being so gracious uh, with your answers and with your time. Yeah. And for the people that want to know more about you, where can they find you? Well, I'm pretty much on uh, most socials under my old name, Ben Do Brown. I've, I've kept that for familiarity. So you can find me on Twitter, on YouTube, on, on LinkedIn under that. And yeah, look, if you're, if you're starting out and you want some, some links or you, you want to find out some tools or anything, you know, I'm always, I always try to get back to people. I don't get back to people immediately, but. Maybe a few months later, you might get a message back. But um, <laughs> yeah, very happy to to share and and you know I'm I'm often promoting people in the community. So please, you know, if you have any work that that you think would be interesting, I'd, I'd definitely be keen to share it because I think there's new people entering this space, bringing new techniques and new skills, and and I love that passion. So please hit me up. And thanks so much for having me on the on this podcast. Honestly, it's been an honor and an enjoyable chat and some really, really good topics that I think are, are great for the industry. Thank you. I hope to speak to you soon and have a great day. Thank you, uh, Ben. Thank you so much, Ben. Hey, guys. Again, thank you for listening to the podcast. I wanted to share with you guys something that we've been doing and we've not really talked about, but we have created a, a subscription on our website where you can get insights into our reports that we don't fully publish. But even more, if you take the top secret clearance, you can get access to our combined Slack channel where you can engage with all the analysts, all the writers and the contributors that that work on reports online, as well as other professionals that are already in there. You can share sources, you can talk about difficulties, career opportunities. So... Please, guys, have a look. If you're listening to the podcast for the first year, you can get a discount up to 20% by using the word podcast in small letters, no caps. You can get 20% discount for year subscriptions. It will support us. It will support the podcast and we'll keep the podcast sponsor free. So thank you guys again. I really appreciate all the support that you guys have been giving us on social media, everywhere. Keep doing that, please. And I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you and have a great day.